Right now, would you turn to the book of Ecclesiastes, particularly Ecclesiastes chapter 9. And if you have the Bible that's there in the pew, which if you don't have a Bible, is yours to keep, you can find that on page 465. If you brought your own Bible, which is awesome, I can't tell you what page it's on, but Ecclesiastes chapter 9. As you're finding that, let me offer you this. Life is supposed to be fair. Life is supposed to be fair. This is what we believe, right? If you're a good person, if you love God, and if you do your best, your life should go well. If you are a bad person, if you reject God, if you are lazy and inconsiderate, well, then your life shouldn't go well. The better you are, the better your life should go. One should get what one deserves. We believe this is how it's supposed to be. All this summer, we've been studying the book of Ecclesiastes. And Ecclesiastes is King Solomon's extended reflection upon the meaning and purpose of life. Again and again, we've seen Solomon weigh the evidence of his senses, what he sees and perceives in the world, over and against the beliefs of his community of faith. And if you've been with us for all of it, part of it, the results of his exploration have been startling, perhaps even a little disturbing, because everything is not so black and white. Long-held convictions suddenly appear less certain. You see, Ecclesiastes confronts us with the hard reality that life isn't always fair. Things do not often work out the way we believe they're supposed to. Bad people don't always get what they deserve, and good things don't always happen to good people. As we draw near the end of this book, and we are getting close to the end, Solomon continues to wrestle with how to resolve this tension. And a lot of what you're going to hear this morning, a lot of what he has to say, we've heard before. But he's not done offering us new insights. The question, and why Solomon keeps repeating to himself, if not to us, is will it sink in this time? Will we yield before the truth of Scripture, even as deeply held assumptions about how the world is supposed to work are shown to be false? And with that, I invite you to hear from Ecclesiastes. Our sermon today will cover chapters 9 through 11, but I'm simply going to be reading from chapter 9, verses 1 through 12. Hear the word of the Lord as Solomon writes. So I reflected on all this and concluded that the righteous and the wise and what they do are in God's hands. But no one knows whether love or hate awaits them. All share a common destiny, the righteous and the wicked, the good and the bad, the clean and the unclean, those who offer sacrifices and those who do not. As it is with the good, so with the sinful. As it is with those who take oaths, so with those who are afraid to take them. This is the evil in everything that happens under the sun. The same destiny overtakes all. The hearts of people, moreover, are full of evil, and there is madness in their hearts while they live. And afterward, they join the dead. Anyone who is among the living has hope. Even a live dog is better off than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die. But the dead know nothing. They have no further reward, and even their name is forgotten. Their love, their hate, and their jealousy have long since vanished. Never again will they have a part in anything that happens under the sun. Go, 
Eat your food with gladness and drink your wine with a joyful heart, for God has already approved what you do. Always be clothed in white and always anoint your head with oil. Enjoy life with your wife whom you love all the days of this meaningless life that God has given you under the sun. All your meaningless days. For this is your lot in life and in your toilsome labor under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. For in the realm of the dead where you are going, there is neither working nor planning nor knowledge nor wisdom. I have seen something else under the sun. The race is not to the swift or the battle to the strong, nor does food come to the wise or wealth to the brilliant or favor to the learned, but time and chance happen to them all. Moreover, no one knows when their hour will come. As fish are caught in a cruel net or birds are taken in a snare, so people are trapped by evil times that fall unexpectedly upon them. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Here in chapter 9, Solomon gives us good news and bad news. And if you've been here at all this summer in Ecclesiastes, you've come to expect that Solomon always has bad news. Right? Solomon always has bad news. And this bad news today is something we all share. It's common to the human condition. I hope you have those Bibles still open. Do not close them because I'm going to be pointing you back to it. Here in the first six verses of chapter 9, Solomon declares the first thing that we have in common, our common gap in knowledge. The first part of the bad news is no one knows what will happen to them in this life. As Solomon puts it, no one knows whether love or hate awaits him. In other words, no one knows what the future holds, whether tomorrow will bring prosperity or adversity, whether tomorrow will be a good day or a bad day. And if you still have those Bibles open, you know it gets worse before it gets better. Although we share a common lack of knowledge about tomorrow, Solomon writes, the righteous and the wicked, the good and the bad, the clean and the unclean, those who offer sacrifices and those who do not, all share a common destiny as well. Solomon says, in other words, the only thing we know for sure is we're going to die. Great. Great. So here we are. For Solomon, first two things. All we can know are two things, what's right in front of us today, and that someday we will die. But just in case we don't get it, Solomon fills out the rest for us as well, what's in between now and then. And in the middle of all this, Solomon tells us the appearance life gives us of progress. The appearance life gives us of progress, that we are gaining increasing control over the conditions and outcomes of our lives, that appearance is an illusion. The race is not to the swift, Solomon writes, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge. Beloved, those whom we vote most likely to succeed in life are not necessarily the ones who make it to the top. Because accidents happen. Circumstances change. The clock runs out. As Solomon says, no one knows when his or her hour may come. In other words, life is not only brief, it is unpredictable. There are forces at work outside of our reach, our influence beyond the exercise of our will. Solomon says time and chance happen to us all. And chance, as Solomon uses that word here, is not equivalent to our modern understanding of luck. 
When Solomon invokes the word chance, he's talking about what happens apart from our intentions, our awareness, our will. But that doesn't mean luck. Time and chance affect everyone. So if you, if you haven't heard it yet, if you're, if, to bring it all together, Solomon's trifecta of bad news is this. You are not in control. I am not the master of my fate. We are not in charge of our destinies. The future is not in our hands. It is in God's. And as John, preaching last week, took us through the chapters before this, what is hard is the future is not in our hands, it's in God's, but it's not always clear what God is up to, which leaves us through life, as John expressed, with this, this, this continual universal question, why? Why do bad things happen? Why does God allow this? Why is this taking place? Why didn't that happen? And that why as John also alluded to, as the scriptures point to, that why that we all ask is answered by the cross. God is with us in our why. On the cross, Jesus himself asked our why when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The cross is the first part of knowing that God is with us in that question. But equally, almost maybe more important, is the resurrection. Because in the resurrection of Christ from the dead, we have the down payment on a promise. We have the assurance that God will answer the why with a decisive yes. And that's where John ended our time reading from the book of Revelation. That the cross and the resurrection is the assurance that God has an answer for the why. But what's interesting to me is that Solomon here addresses a different question in these closing chapters. Not so much the why as the how. How? How should we live in the face of how little we can know? How should we live with the realization of how much control we don't have? Should we just play dumb and act like fools, figuring Ignorance is bliss. This is a popular and tempting option. It is a popular and tempting option to live as if there are no consequences, as if nothing matters, to go for the cheap thrills, the quick solutions, the easy answers. Don't think, don't reflect, don't feel, just go for it. Just go with it. There's something in us as a people that makes us lean towards foolishness. Or my, one of my uncles used to call being a schmuck. I love that word. Schmuck is a great word. You know what a schmuck is? A schmuck is a contemptible fool. And one option in the midst of how out of control we are of everything, in the midst of what Solomon said is, hey, just be a schmuck. Be a fool. Why did you do that? Why did you do that? Didn't you know that was going to happen? I don't know. I don't know. I, uh, I didn't really think about it. It just sort of happened. Being a schmuck, is that our option? Much is made in our world today of the sliding moral values, right? I mean, my gosh, there is so much rhetoric being spewed right now about the line between what's good and bad. If you doubt me, go on Facebook. You know, everybody's got something to say about the line between what's good and bad. 
People are lamenting in the church, outside the church. The problem we face is an inability to distinguish, an inability to distinguish between good and evil. And I don't want to negate that. But I think it's interesting that the Bible's primary focus isn't that. God seems to think that the line between good and evil is pretty clear. No, if, you, if you've ever thought about this, if you've ever looked at the scriptures, the scriptures as a whole stress that our trouble, our problem is understanding that some of the most important choices in life are not between good and evil, but between wisdom and folly. Wisdom and folly. Think about it. And I'm not going to name names because I don't like that. But think about, think about our culture right now. Think about in today's culture. Think about politics. Think about entertainment. Think about sports. Think about it for a second. We elevate the foolhardy. We elevate the foolhardy. People who lack common sense and integrity. Meanwhile, the wise seem nowhere to be found. We get all geeked up about people who say stupid stuff. People who do stupid things. Man, oh, there, they said it. They did it. Oh, by God, yeah. Who cares if it was smart? Who cares if it was wise? I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore. So by God, be a schmuck. And yet, the scriptures warn us against the difference between wisdom and folly. Jesus' own life Contrast with the wisdom of this world. This is so important for us. We, we don't talk about this enough. Jesus' own life, how he lived his life, what his life was about, contrast with the wisdom of this world. And the great example, greatest example of this, the scriptures tell us, is the cross itself. I mean, think about it. Think about how we think things are supposed to be. You don't come and save the world by allowing yourself to get arrested, falsely accused, and crucified. No one in this room would say, recipe for success. New York Times bestseller right there. And to add insult to injury, you don't allow yourself to be crucified by the very people who are rejecting you. You don't come to save the very people who are rejecting you. We, you play to the audience that's going to give you approval, not that's going to nail you to a cross. Beloved, the way of Jesus, the way of the cross, the scriptures tell us again and again, reveals the foolish things we elevate and worship over and against wisdom. Yeah, but wisdom is boring. Wisdom doesn't sell. Solomon, at the end of chapter 9, it's where I stopped reading if you have those Bibles open. At the very end of chapter 9, Solomon tells this little story, teasing out this idea. And in this story, he says, wisdom is better than strength. And it's proven in the story that he tells because a poor old man is able through wisdom to save the city. But don't miss the punchline in this brief little story. Wisdom is greater than strength. It can save a city. But at the end of the day, wisdom is quickly forgotten. Wisdom is quickly forgotten. And then in the middle, in, in the middle of chapter 10, going all the way to 11, Solomon makes a turn and starts teaching us using Proverbs. It's almost like he borrows from the book of Proverbs and brings it into Ecclesiastes. He gives us these various pictures of the tension between wisdom and foolishness. And through these pictures, the focus varies, but the point remains the same. Wisdom, while it has its limitations, is still the better alternative to just leaving your brain at the door, tossing up your hands and saying, whatever, don't be a fool. 
Solomon is telling us. And it takes one to know one. Solomon is recorded as being the wisest man who ever lives. We all know this, right? We know that Solomon, at the start of his reign, God said, ask me for anything. And Solomon was brilliant and said, give me wisdom, Lord. Give me your wisdom. Great answer. And Solomon, therefore, was given by God wisdom, and he's known as the wisest man who ever lived. But did you ever think about this? Are you familiar with this story? Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, ended his life playing the fool. Playing the fool. If you doubt this, if you're not familiar with it, later on today, go look it up in your Bible. Go to 1 Kings chapter 11. You can go even a little bit farther back, but 1 Kings chapter 11 will do nicely. But I warn you, it's not pretty. It's not pretty. Bad marriages, grotesque worship practices, multiple rivalries, the foolish end of Solomon's reign paves the way for civil war and a divided kingdom. We must not choose to be fools. But what then shall we do? How then should we live in the face of this brief, unpredictable life? Should we despair? Should we worry ourselves to death? <laughs> Since there are no guarantees, should we stop aiming to be swift, strong, wise, brilliant, learned? Should we just give up, bide our time, wait to die? Again, this is a popular and tempting option. If the resignation of fools is not the way to go, then perhaps retreat is the better alternative. Not for Solomon. One of the things that's so compelling to me about Ecclesiastes is that while Solomon may give us the brutal truth, he never throws in the towel. I love that John said that last week. It's honest. John's like, if I was Solomon and I had what he had, I'd just give up. I would too. But what's compelling to me is Solomon, while he doesn't hide from the brutal truth, never throws in the towel. If waiting for death sounds appealing to us, Solomon says right here, think again. I mean, if you have those Bibles open, if you missed it, uh, Solomon paints a pretty unattractive picture of life after death. Now, let's be clear, death in Solomon's day, the way he understood it, his people understood it, was not non-existence but it couldn't anticipate resurrection either. Death in Solomon's day involved this understanding of a place called Sheol, a shadowy afterlife. So this, the view was when you died, you were in this nebulous state of suspended animation, unconscious and unaware. And it's out of that that Solomon says, if you think waiting for death is appealing, the dead know nothing. The dead feel nothing. The dead, Solomon says, are forgotten. The dead are out of commission. Solomon says, never again will they have a part in anything that happens under the sun. And in case we're still thinking, well, death sure sounds pretty good to me, Solomon hits it emphatically when he says, look, even a live dog is better than a dead lion. You hear it? For Solomon, a scavenger, a scrapper with a pulse is better than someone in high standing without one. No retreat, no surrender. Solomon's word to us today in answer to the how is this. Go, eat your food with gladness and drink your wine with a joyful heart. Enjoy life with your spouse whom you love. 
all the days of this meaningless life. The NIV doesn't do us any helps here because when it says meaningless life, if you look up this word in Hebrew, there's lots of ways it can be translated. And I would argue in the context of what Solomon is saying, it would, we would be better served translating this word this way. Eat your food with gladness. Drink your wine with a joyful heart. Enjoy life with your spouse whom you love all the days of this fleeting life. It's not meaningless for Solomon. It's fleeting. It's brief. Enjoy all the days of this fleeting life that God has given you under the sun. In other words, recognize whatever you have. All of it is the gift of God. Your victory in a race or in battle, the food that's on your table, the wealth in your possession, the favor that you receive, it's not ultimately because you were swifter, stronger, wiser, more brilliant, or more learned. We don't earn such things. We don't control them. They are gifts from God. This is a foundational principle of our faith, what I've just said. Foundational. If we miss this or reject this, everything else falls apart. I kid you not. If you, don't, if you miss this or reject this, everything else falls apart. But it's hard to accept, though, isn't it? It's hard to accept. I mean, when we experience success in our lives, we're quick to take credit for it, right? When we experience success in our lives, we're quick to take credit for it. We earned it. We deserve it. But when we encounter failure or face suffering, we're surprised. We're shocked. And while we may take some responsibility for it, we tend to put the onus back on God. Why did God let this happen? Why did God not come through? Do you see the inconsistency there? Last week, John tapped into the very frustration that we have with God. And it's a very real one for all of us. I don't want to make light of it or minimize it at all. Why does God allow bad things to happen? John said very passionately, it is a fair question. It is a legitimate question. And he's right. The scripture says it is. And I don't want to take away from or minimize the real challenges and deep struggles many of us are facing today. Please hear that. I don't want to take away or minimize the real challenges and deep struggles many of us are facing. But there's another question we're not asking and we should. Why does God allow bad things to happen is a fair, legitimate question. But beloved, why does God allow anything good to happen at all? That's a legitimate question too. Where does our belief, God owes us something, come from? Where does that come from? Where does our belief that God owes us something come from? On what basis do we claim a guarantee? John was wrestling with it last week, and he said, he spoke for us all, and he said, we're trying. And if we complete that sentence, we're trying, and that should be good enough. We're trying, and that should be good enough. Here's the thing, and this is why this is foundational. There's no way around this. If it is true, we owe everything to God. Not some things, not those things, not a couple of things. Everything to God. If that's true, that we owe everything to God, then everything ought to be what God expects. Everything. But we're trying. Awesome. Not good enough. If everything is ours from God, then God should expect everything from us. 
Why does God allow anything good to happen at all? Because here's the thing. What I've just given you is a premise that basically says, the way it should be is God should just go, done. And yet we sit here, we know that even though God doesn't get everything God deserves, God still gives us good things. This is Solomon's point. Even before the cross, God, even though he doesn't get what he deserves, gives us good things. That's the good news. That's the gospel. The small word we have for everything I just said is grace. That's grace. We get what we don't deserve. The problem becomes when we take what God gives and claim it as a right. And that's why Solomon says, receive and embrace what God has given you. Actually, Solomon expresses it this way. Go eat your food with gladness and drink your wine with a joyful heart for God has already approved what you do. God has already approved what you do. Solomon isn't saying, just to be sure, that God has given each of us a blank check and it's unlimited approval to do whatever we want. No, Solomon's point, hear this, is that God not only gives us grace, the good gifts of this life, God also gives us the ability to enjoy life through what he provides. And this may seem to you this morning like a minor point, but trust me, it's a significant one. The Lord desires for us to experience joy in our lives, both having things and enjoying them are gifts of God. The world God created our lives he has given us are full of many rich gifts. But the power to enjoy them does not lie in the gifts themselves. The enjoyment of such gifts, the enjoyment of life, is not something that's intrinsic to our humanity. That's, you see, that, that's, the, that's what Solomon's been trying to help us to see throughout this whole book, right? The gifts of life. Life itself are not inherently bad or worthless. We stereotype this book. Solomon has never said that the life itself is worthless, that the gifts of life are bad or meaningless. What he's been trying to say is that it's just apart from the giver, those gifts, life itself does not satisfy. It cannot bring us joy. Apart from God, and we know this to be true, apart from God, the gifts that we have been given cause us to worry, to envy, to hurt each other, to hoard, to stumble. Apart from God, we become addicted, codependent, consumed by the very things intended to bless us. They actually become curses. Because you see, joy is not something we can presume. Joy is not something we can presume. Enjoyment is not something we can anticipate or strategize to obtain. And if you've ever been a parent or have been around, tried to do something for a child, you know what I'm talking about. Have you ever had this experience? You as a parent, an aunt, an uncle, uh, just a, an adult who wants to make, change the life of a child, you try to orchestrate an awesome event for a kid. You ever had this experience? You've gone through and you've set up all the appropriate things to, for them to just be filled with joy. It'll be the greatest day ever. And it falls flat. They're not having a good time. They don't appreciate what you've done. They're not enjoying it. And I'm not confessing anything right now. Wink, wink, nod, nod. But if you've ever found yourself in those circumstances, you begin to guilt and shame them into joy. <laughs> don't you know what I've done? Don't you know what I've set up? Don't you know how much fun you're supposed to be having right now? 
Doesn't work, right? You can't orchestrate or strategize to obtain enjoyment because the possibility of enjoyment is God's gift. Our enjoyment of life, our enjoyment of the things given to us by God is a gift of God itself that's discovered and unwrapped through our worship of God rather than the gifts themselves. That's why we're here. That's why we do this. Because this is simply a snapshot of what our life of worship is supposed to be like. Where the same way our focus is on the cross, we're looking towards God, we're giving glory to God, singing, praising, everything else out there, that's where our joy comes from. Jesus once said it like this. Anyone who loves their life will lose it. While anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If that saying of Jesus has always perplexed you, read it in light of Solomon and you'll get it. Beloved, we're all here. And what I mean by that when I say we're all here is we're all still breathing. We're alive. We all have gifts. And again, I don't want to mitigate as I look around this room that many of us are going through some tough things. Some of us are struggling in more ways than others. We all probably have something that is not as we would want it in our lives. But with that, as I look around this room, I can look in the face of every person and I can safely say we all have good gifts that we've been given by God. The question is, do we have joy? Many people today go through life with little joy. I'm asking you, are you enjoying your life, the good things in your life? Is your joy in the Lord? Are you letting your father give you joy? Don't confuse being a schmuck with letting your joy come from God. Are you letting your father give you joy even in the midst of trying circumstances and a difficult situation? I want to be so clear on this because I'm so sensitive I'm pushing buttons. Well, I'm not pushing buttons, but Solomon is not telling us at all that we should close our eyes to the challenges and sufferings of life and just pretend that everything is okay. You need to hear me on that. Solomon is not telling us to just close our eyes to the challenges in front of us, the sufferings of life, and just pretend that everything's okay. No, he recognizes that life is fleeting, that this life under the sun God has given us is but a vapor. It's, it's fading away. Beloved, what Solomon is doing here is he's shaking us at the roots, the places that have gone numb, maybe even dead in our lives, and he's admonishing us that we have hope. Anyone who is alive has hope, Solomon writes, because they have the opportunity to enjoy the gift of life as well as the gifts God has given them, the joys this life has to offer. The good news, beloved, is there's still time left. If we still have life in us, there's still time for us to pursue joy. And that's why later in chapter 9, in verse 10, Solomon writes, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. The word picture that he's using here is teasing out this idea that there are things within our reach at any given moment. Things within our reach, relationships, responsibilities, resources right in front of us, put before us by God as a means to experience joy and to bring joy to others. The Apostle Paul, writing much later, expressed it this way. Be very careful, then, how you live. Not as unwise, interesting, but as wise, 
making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is not just literally talking that we should be singing all the time to each other. He is saying to let the joy that comes from the Lord to come through our lives and to reflect it to each other. Sing and make music in your heart. Let the joy that God seeks to give you and what he has given you exude from you. And in so doing, you are glorifying God and you are expanding the joy that God has for his creation, for humanity. Make the most of every opportunity. Understand what the Lord's will is. Have the wisdom to recognize that whatever you have, whatever it is, is the gift of God and to take what the Lord gives you wherever the Spirit has led us, whatever our current situation, and to live deeply, fully, and responsibly. This is Solomon's word for us today. So, what are some of the things that are within your reach? What relationships what responsibilities, what resources has God put in front of you that you need to be engaging right now? What is holding you back? Are we stuck in the moment, so fixated on what happened or what didn't happen that we can't see past it? Are we missing God-given opportunities right before us because we're deadlocked in our focus about what might be someday? So much that we're unable to fully engage today. Are we still looking for our circumstances to define us? So caught up in what needs to happen, what we need to achieve before we can be confident and certain in moving forward. Beloved, only when we are content to be who, where, and how we are will we be able to engage what is within our reach and appreciate the gift of life we have been given as well as experience the joys the Lord desires for us to experience within our own lives? What does this look like? I understand. What does this look like? What does that look like? I think of Burhani. If you weren't with us a couple of weeks ago, Burhani is one of our missionaries who gave testimony I think of Burhani, a man who was detained without explanation or cause for four years. And rather than crawl up in his cell and lament alone, he despaired. Yes, his circumstances were rough. I'm not mitigating that at all, nor would he. But rather than simply live in the darkness of his cell, Burhani saw an opportunity, a God-given opportunity to serve the four other Muslim men who shared his cell, and if you heard him speak a couple of weeks ago, he found joy in being a peacemaker, a witness for Jesus. What does this look like? I remember a parishioner I once knew, not from this church, a parishioner I once knew who struggled with kidney failure. This man had to daily go through hours of dialysis, hours of dialysis, hooked up to a machine every day 
He didn't throw up his hands and go, well, my body's failing me, so woohoo! He saw in the midst of difficult, challenging, painful circumstances, a God-given opportunity, and he made the most of the time he had by getting to know the names and the stories of every person who waited on him. And in so doing, intentionally sought to bless them with the love and the joy of Jesus Christ. And I'm going to tell you, his memorial service was unbelievable because there was such a representation of people who, where others of us would say, well, I only have this much time left. This is all that I have. This is the only time I have left. And we would wring our hands. The testimony of his life were people I can remember who were sitting there who had only known this man through his dialysis but gave testimony that their lives had been profoundly changed. That they had experienced an understanding of life. This Jesus that he knew they gave testimony. You remember in Ecclesiastes, I've said, we don't leave a legacy, we leave a testimony. He did. What does this look like? <laughs> a dear friend comes to mind. A dear friend comes to mind who struggled to have a child. And that is hard. So, so many, we don't even realize, struggle to get pregnant. And this dear friend was struggling to have a child. And yet in the midst of trying to exhaust every option, every awkward, every painful option, every frustration, did not simply sit in that place alone. And that place to sit in is hard. I'm not undermining that or, or taking away from that at all. But this person in the midst of, while going through that, saw and God give an opportunity and traveled to other countries to work with children in orphanages. And then when she reached the end of exhausting every possibility and was told the news that no one wants to hear, that a child of her own wasn't going to be possible, she still saw a God-given opportunity and embraced the challenge. And it is a challenge, but also the need for foster care and adoption. And she has not only changed the lives of three kids, she has fundamentally changed the lives potentially of children elsewhere as she has opened up an opportunity, a ministry in her own church that other families, other people were unaware of. Beloved, the truth is we don't have to live lives of quiet desperation. The brevity, the unpredictability of life in this world does not have to preclude us from enjoying the lives we have been given. Both our lives as well as the joys that life can bring are gifts from God. When grateful celebration becomes our orientation towards our lives, and in particular our creator, life is good even when our circumstances are not. Life is good even when our circumstances are not. Life is good, but our time is short. No retreat, no surrender. No excuses, no regrets. Where can you make the most of every opportunity the Lord has put before you? What untapped but much needed joy is within our reach if only we would lean and trust the Lord. Will you pray with me? Father, this life that you have given us under the sun is short. It's overshadowed 
by so many wise. Lord, give us eyes to see. Give us the strength and the courage to lean on the truth of your cross, the promise of your resurrection, the words of revelation in the midst of the why, to not let the why overwhelm us so that we do not live out the how. Lord, may we learn from your word today that all we have that is good, all that we have, the joy itself that good things give to us come from you. Help us, Lord, to, to respond to that goodness, to the opportunities, to the things within our reach. Help us, Lord. Teach us to be joyful, to find our joy in you, and in so doing, to share that joy, to reflect it to those who do not know and have not heard. As we feel the quickness at which our lives are passing by and slowing down, change us by your word today, Lord, so that we wouldn't be fools, but we also wouldn't just be waiting to die, but we would begin to live the eternal life that is ours even now in Jesus Christ. We ask this through the power of the Spirit and always in his name. And all God's people said, amen.